Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. This is Peter Cataray. I'm the head of sales and marketing for Oppenheimer Asset Management, and I'm joined today by a good friend and longtime colleague, John Stolfus. John is the managing director and serves as our chief investment strategist for Oppenheimer Asset Management. Um, Today, John and I are going to plan to have a conversation about the current state of the economy, where we stand on the road to recovery. We plan to discuss the equity markets and put our current recovery and valuations in historical context. And perhaps most importantly, we plan to discuss where we believe we're headed for the balance of 2020 and into 2021. So, John, welcome. It's great to chat with you today. And, you know, when I introduce you as our chief investment strategist, I feel like I'm shortchanging you because I could use so many other titles of professor, musician, parent, friend, all of those good things. So let me just start by asking how you're doing, John. How are you holding up in this world and how are things in New York City? Well, uh, uh, Peter, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on this conversation. Uh, it's great to be on a podcast with you. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've, uh, we've worked together for the last few years, and uh, I always enjoy working with you. Uh, here in New York City, or what I call Coronaville, uh, which because we were the epicenter of, uh, of the corona uh, situation, uh, is, essentially life goes on. You know, uh, I have been working from home now since somewhere around early March or uh, to, to mid-March. And um, so I have not been in the office, but because I have substantial amounts of, of computerization at home, easy access to the system and uh, my uh, Bloomberg professional services terminal, I, I really, you know, I have uh, no problem with that. Um, John, I'm often on the receiving end of those emails at five in the morning from your Bloomberg uh, professional <laughs> services terminal. So I appreciate that. You said something interesting to me the other day when we were chatting, which is that in this type of news flow, it's critical to keep your eye on the ball. Well, you know, where's the ball right now? What are the critical things you're looking at when you wake up and turn that Bloomberg on in the morning? I'd say uh, the first thing I, I'm looking at is to get an idea of what the headlines are and how the uh, markets around the world are responding to the headlines. Uh, there's significant sensitivity that the markets have today to developments that, have, that can occur overnight, uh, whether it is a, a tweet from uh, Washington, D.C., or a pronouncement uh, from Beijing or from, uh, from somewhere on Capitol Hill. Uh, so we're always looking at that uh, and see what the developments are in terms of COVID-19. I'd say the principal thing that we have to look at these days is is the juxtaposition of where we are today related to uh, uh, the difficulties that we still have managing a period of time where we are not yet post-COVID. If anything, we're not even, you know, looking at a, a second tranche of this thing. We are still in the first tranche with a resurgence that has uh, developed as economies across not only the United States, but across the world uh, begin to reopen. Uh, There's elements of when people get back together, if it's too soon, too fast, or people don't follow the very simple uh, axioms of wear a mask uh, and social distance, uh, you get to see these upticks that occur. 
So with that, the main thing is to get an idea, how are we positioned today? You know, if we look at interest rates, we see a 10-year treasury at around uh, a little over six-tenths of a percent. Uh, extremely little competition for equities in, in terms of fixed income. Uh, and we look at other asset class in the commodity space. The last I looked uh, on a basket of 19 commodities uh, on a year-to-date basis, uh, the best performing, the best performers, as I recall, were gold, uh, orange juice, uh, and uh, as I recall, I, I believe it was also energy itself. So a right. very, very small amount, the number of, of those 19 commodities. So what we'd say to that, we look at that, is, is there's not a lot of signs like things are roaring back. We don't think there's a risk of significant levels of inflation. Let me ask you a quick question on that point, if I may, John, before we leave the energy side. We saw Warren Buffett write a $10 billion check earlier this week for 18% of the, the U.S. pipelines with a check. Is that a contrarian indicator? Are we seeing the, the Oracle of Omaha step in and tell us we're at a bottom in that part of the market? From a historical perspective, we'd have to think that it, it most certainly might be. It also might be uh, yet another uh, move by the Oracle of Omaha into a value play before value gets recognized uh, for the value that it is versus the growth components within the market. It let, let's sort of maybe take that theme for a second and talk about sectors. One of the things that you've talked a lot about over the years and have been spot on has been about the sort of ubiquitous nature of technology. And I think you've mentioned robotics on the factory floor and algorithms in the boardroom. Technology has been holding this market up. Talk a little bit about it. Talk about it from a valuation standpoint. And then talk about the spillover effect into things like inflation and other economic indicators where the efficiencies of technology are, are so obvious. So give us a guidance on that, John. Yeah, you know, uh, Peter, we have been uh, long proponents of, of the uh, technology sector, uh, very much where we, we believe technology today is uh, on parallel uh, to where the automobile was in the early 20th century when it began to replace the horse. Uh, and today what we would say is not so much that technology is about to uh, replace humanity, but it just changes the way we do the things we do. More formal basis, we would say it changes uh, the way we execute. Uh, so when we are getting into the car and we are driving to a business location or to see friends, and we don't know exactly how to get there. We don't have a yellow legal notepad with us, but instead what we do is we take our smartphone, we either connect it wirelessly to the dashboard or with a wire, and suddenly we contact a satellite up in the sky and via GPS find our way to where we're going in a much more convenient, uh, in most cases, and even safe fashion than what would be uh, reading a, a legal pad as, as we move forward. Uh, it, it also has to do with uh, the way people communicate with each other. If you think about social media today, the way companies communicate with their customers, uh, it has to do technology related to advanced logistics, advanced design equipment for manufacturing, 3D printing, and a host of other things that technology does. And it's via robotics, it's via algorithmic solutions, it's via the cloud, Internet of Things, uh, and is a component of a secular trend that combines technology and globalization. Which is, is the market factoring that in price-wise, though, John? I mean, technology is not cheap, right? I'd have to say the market is pricing it in. There are segments of technology or, or technology-linked 
uh, businesses. I'm thinking of one particular auto manufacturer, for example, uh, where uh, the multiples can get very much out of hand. But generally speaking, uh, on a secular basis, it would seem with the 10-year treasury at around 0.6 tenths of a percent that uh, there's not a heck of a lot of competition for technology. And the wonderful thing about technology is you can also buy into other sectors, particularly in alpha-based or uh, individual security opportunities, companies that are utilizing technology to, for example, just overcome the problems that we had from COVID-19 on the prowl today. If you just look at earnings for the second quarter, there's clear definition between winners and losers. There are some companies that have actually done better than would have been expected uh, because they were on the right technology platform to deliver their services or the goods uh, that they provide. So, John, you, you talked about earnings. Let's dig in on that for just a minute. July 14th, I think earnest, you know, earnings season starts in earnest. <laughs> and I'm just curious, it'll be a very interesting pulse to take of the market. What are your expectations? What are your thoughts? Uh, right now, we'd say the first thing, if we look at consensus estimates, uh, the last I saw was consensus analysis is looking for around uh, a 44% decline in earnings year over year. I think that's not an item that's going to be a main focus of the market. I think that's expected. What the market will be looking at is worse than expected earnings results than that, or better than expected earnings results uh, than that. Uh, it, as is typical of this market that we've been living with, uh, what I would call the modern age market, which would be that that includes the great financial crisis and the recovery from it, which is very tech and globalized uh, in its essence, uh, we would have to think that we'll likely see some enough surprises to make earnings season for the second quarter not as bad as consensus is expecting. Going forward from that, we would hope that so long as we can get through this period of COVID uh, resurgence without going back to a March 2020 type of advancement of, of COVID, the spread of COVID, uh, we would expect that earnings projections will begin to get better in the third quarter into the fourth as the economy begins to improve with the reopenings. On that topic, John, let's talk for just a minute about the difference between Europe and, and the U.S. as it relates to this response and the potential economy that follows a year, two years, three years. There's a growing thought on Wall Street that Europe and Asia may be set up for some very strong results because of their response to this situation. Talk for a minute about international relative to the very strong results of domestic and how you're navigating that, that area. Well, uh, Peter, as you know, at the beginning of this year, when many firms uh, were suggesting that emerging and developed international markets and underweight the U.S., we didn't do that. We continued to overweight the U.S. while maintaining yep. significant and meaningful exposure to both emerging markets and developed international markets, as well as frontier markets. Uh, and we did that at that time on expectations that there would be some kind of uh, a resolution or something that would lead to hopefully a resolution of the trade war, but we didn't think it would be overnight success. You know, we thought it would be, well, we, we didn't know it was going to be a phase one. We didn't realize how staged it was going to be designed to be at that point. We didn't know what the structure would be, but indeed we did see that happen, but we didn't think it would be an overnight cure for the trade war. Uh, so we wanted to see how it worked out, and the U.S. has proven to be 
uh, the place to be over the last few years over international. No matter how many years we begin the year with many firms saying overweight the international versus the U.S. because the U.S. has been such a strong, strong performer. We do think moving forward that you will see in international developed markets and international emerging markets uh, opportunities as a, as a result simply that those markets are on much cheaper valuations and they are also because they entered the battle with COVID, not the, the Latin American markets, but Europe and Asia entered the COVID problem much earlier. They dealt with this, many of which have, have used the China model locked down very early on relative to where they were, or at least since they were in the front of it, they, they are ahead of us in that. We should see a bounce back. The problem for those international markets is for a global economic recovery, for those, for both developed and emerging markets, what they need is the recovery of the U.S. economy because we're such a big buyer of foreign goods and services. And Can they perform, John, when our dollar stays as strong as it is? Does it? Does that scenario require a weakening of the dollar? Well, it ultimately, for them to begin to outperform uh, the U.S., we would have to think you would have to see a, a sustained weakening of the dollar not a weakening of the dollar that is relative to any kind of a systemic problem in the U.S., but rather a weakening of the dollar on recognition that the rest of the world was beginning to do better, the U.S. was doing better, and we were beginning to move toward, not necessarily be in, but moving toward a global economic recovery on back of some kind of evidence of an economic recovery led by the U.S. So let's talk a little bit more in this vein of asset allocation, because really, at the end of the day, a lot of what our decisions are in this business are capital allocation decisions, right? What's the place where we can put capital for the greatest return? The traditional position of using fixed income as the offset to risk and the source of income is tested right now, right? A 60-plus basis point on a 10-year treasury is not a lot of yield. Talk for a minute about how you're navigating that, John. How should clients be thinking about creating income in this market? Well, I think for income, it becomes very clear to us that the place to look is in, in dividend-producing equities. Uh, stocks that pay dividends offer an opportunity, essentially, if, if you're looking for total return, to get paid while you wait, in essence, uh, receiving a, a dividend on a quarterly basis. We don't suggest that investors, and we don't, stretch for yields, so we don't look for the highest yield among companies, but rather would diversify the exposure to dividend stocks among higher yielders, but with a preponderance of average uh, yielding type stocks to mid-level yielding type stocks, but with significant opportunity from upside by owning companies that are well positioned in cyclical sectors versus then overweighting defensive sectors. Are you comfortable with the stability of the dividends in those businesses? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of unknown unknown ahead of us. So what do you think about the stability of dividends across the board? I think that the stability of, of dividends has so far been remarkably good. We check uh, on a weekly basis the number of companies that have either suspended dividends, raised their dividends, or reiterated their dividends that belong to the Russell 3000 as well as the S&P 500. And it is the number that have suspended or eliminated dividends is not an alarming number. Uh, curiously enough, when it happens, it oftentimes in, in the dividend-paying stocks that we've seen eliminate the dividend or suspend it, 
It's in companies that are good, that offer uh, significant value or even growth opportunities. And what usually occurs uh, immediately is the stock drops. It can be a fairly dramatic drop if the market is moving lower, or it can be a modest drop as dividend-mandated uh, investors get out of the stock. But very quickly, you see there's another group of investors that come in that think the suspension of the dividend is a good idea because it allows businesses, management, to dedicate that money that instead of going to dividends will go into the business to either improve business, invest in, in, uh, in the improvement of the business, or shore it up as it navigates troubled waters right now through the COVID situation. I've heard a lot of talk just amongst, you know, research analysts and in investors about the stability of dividends on the banks in particular. Let's just talk for a second about financials as a sector, the second worst performing in the S&P, slightly behind energy, obviously very dependent on interest rate, yield curve, lots of different things. Share your thoughts on that sector, John, and, and how you think they're going to navigate through this period. I've got to say this, Peter, that of our favorite sectors, uh, which, which happen to be technology, consumer discretionary, industrials, and uh, financials. The most troubled is financials. We regard it as our contrarian pick. The irony is, of course, without financials, the world doesn't move because the financials are that sector, which whether it's the big bank. As we saw in 2008, right? right? As we saw in 2008. Exactly. I think the problem is that uh, investors are taking a short-term view and considering the risk that the Federal Reserve will require increased reserve uh, requirements from the banks that will reduce their ability to pay dividends uh, without uh, destabilizing them. Or, and that's all projection. Right now, the last stress test that we saw in the banks, I think with the exception of one of the big banks, they passed essentially with flying colors. Uh, and I think the Fed has already said very much, and I think that's one of the things the market is acknowledging here, is that they are—they have in their thoughts that it might be needed at some point to get the banks to to curb their dividends at some point. I don't think eliminate at this point is a consideration. So at this point, we look at, at the banks as a good story for economic recovery in the U.S. once we can move towards closer as we move towards a post-COVID environment. And again, we are not saying we're post-COVID. We're not even saying we're right on top of a post-COVID. But it would appear to us with over 100 major uh, companies in healthcare working on solutions to create drugs of greater efficacy to deal with COVID uh, as it exists from people who are suffering from it at present, and five major companies involved and selected by the government to lead the forefront in finding a vaccine, uh, we think we're closer, if not uh, you know, as close as we'd all like, to a point where we will get uh, to feel more comfortable with the idea that we can stem the spread of COVID-19. And that should be good for the banks. So we think that'll be a big sigh of relief. And in fact, anytime we have seen move, that we're moving towards that, we start seeing better performance in the financial sector. The financial sector has had some awfully good runs this year. Uh, from its lows. It just uh, tends to give back its uh, its rallies, or at least a portion thereof, on concerns that the Fed could get stricter with the financials if the environment gets rougher. Sure, and certainly financials as a sector present their unique, have a unique set of circumstances around it. And I think 
retail broadly, if we can just describe retail as a broad sector, has also a unique set of issues surrounding it. You know, in the last couple of days, we've seen bankruptcy reports around a number of bellwether retailers, certainly not um, purely caused by COVID, but perhaps has sped up a trend away from brick and mortar. Talk a little bit about the, the consumer, John, and their retail habits. And from an investment perspective, what, what you think about purchasing and owning the retailers over, over the long term? Well, I have to say this. I, I think you have to be very selective, first and foremost, with the retailers. You've got to find a management that has uh, that positions the company to stand out in terms of the experience and uh, the particular value it offers its customers, how it distinguishes itself. Uh, in addition to that, you want to see a company that understands the value of clicks and mortar, or uh, or some just pure clicks, but if you consider the biggest name in clicks and mortar is very quickly trying to get, you know, more bricks and mortar involved uh, in their presentation. And uh, when you look at that, it, we've got to say the consumer has shown where they want to go. What we've seen is we've seen the beginning of a reopening process. The consumer wants to socialize. They want to go to the bars. They want to go to the restaurants. They want to go to the beach. They want to get back to work. They want to get out of the house and they want to get the kids back in school. And that's very positive for, 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 for the consumer discretionary sector. Just think of all that, you know, back to school uh, with clothes. You can't just go in sweatpants to the office. I mean, some of us would like to, but it'd be a little bit, you know, unless you're running a, a yoga emporium, Probably you want to at least be in khakis or jeans, you know. If you're <laughs> right, up. right. Uh, but we, we can't help but think the first tranche of the reopenings has stated that, particularly in the U.S., but around the world as well, the consumer is not bowed or bent or defeated. The consumer is eager to get out and consume again, eager to socialize and eager to get their kids back in school. They want to feel safe, okay? That's an imperative here. But within the generations, it's also, it looks like younger people feel more, much more comfortable uh, about working towards normal or whatever that normal will, will look like. And we belong more in the camp to think that uh, once a vaccine with efficacy shows up and people feel comfortable with it, we're gonna move a lot faster to what used to be normal uh, but still with a sensitivity for a fact that we live in a world today where a pandemic can really happen. It's no longer a thought by Bill Gates that it is, it, it, it's a possibility, an imminent possibility. No, it happened, and it happened on a global basis. Developed, emerging frontier markets, everybody has been dealing with this. So, so, John, maybe the last thing that I'd like to just talk about before we wrap up is, you know, with your experience over the last 30 years on Wall Street, you really have seen every, as you've said, boom and bust and recovery and everything in between. What would you think is the most important piece of advice to impart to an investor right now from your perspective with your experience? What's the thing you find yourself saying to clients throughout the course of the day uh, that you think that we should share? I'd say it's the importance of diversification. I think it's the importance of having a professional advisor to sound uh, your needs, goals, and objectives, and the ideas that you have out. Somebody who has uh, significant and experience in this business. Uh, I think knowing what you own, why you own it, 
and having right-sized expectations of what components of a diversified portfolio, how they're going to act in different kinds of environments as you process the transition that we are currently experiencing, both the secular of technology and globalization, as well as the healthcare concerns that we're dealing with nearer term, I think are essential. Investors need to practice patience and discipline. I think there also needs to be, within that reasonable expectations, right-sized expectations, uh, I think one needs to have stamina and know your objectives and goals and have an idea how what you have in your portfolio can take you there and why some certain components of your portfolio may be later on in the, in the developmental process to get you where you're going and what will help you in the current environment as well. Excellent, John. Thank you. I appreciate the input. I appreciate your thoughts on this wide range of topics. Uh, I hope you stay safe and healthy and I look you. forward to having another podcast with you again shortly. So and, thank and you very Peter, much. I'd hate to correct you, but it's not just 30 years, it's 37 years, which I can't believe. But it's, it's, sometimes I feel like saying, with 27 years, and I go, nope, that's not right. I got 10 more than that. I was <laughs> trying to look out for you, buddy. I was trying to take a couple off for you there. But a full disclosure, it's 37 years, so it's a lot of boom busts and recovery cycles. Well, excellent, John. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll go ahead and conclude here.